welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or the new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician. I'm a CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I'm bringing you Dr. Michael Hasselberg, who is a nurse practitioner with a PhD in research and involved heavily in psychiatry. He's also from the University of Rochester. Another one, yes, I know. There's more people I've interviewed from the University of Rochester than from anywhere else. I think it goes to show just the incredible work that they're doing there. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Awesome, glad you're here today. And I read an article that you did recently and this one was in Health Tech Magazine. It was a lot of comparing Amazon to healthcare and how they handle some things right person, right time. We're gonna get into all that. I was hoping first that you could just kinda introduce the audience to who you are. What, how did you get to where you are today and particularly your role in informatics? Oh, sure, uh, absolutely. So, hello everyone, uh, Michael Hasselberg. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry and clinical nursing at the University of Rochester. I actually, it was kind of serendipity of how I fell into informatics and digital health. I was actually an Alzheimer's researcher. I did pharmacology research. I was going to be that guy that found the next cure or found the cure for Alzheimer's disease. I was recruited to the School of Medicine at the university and the chair in the Department of Psychiatry said, hey, we want you on board. We want you in our department, but I'm not so excited about uh, the Alzheimer's research you're doing. If we let you join faculty, I want you to develop telemedicine for for the Department of Psychiatry. And this was about, oh, this was 2012. And at that time, we had no telemedicine uh, coming out of behavioral health at the university. At that time, there was no reimbursement for telemedicine in the state of New York, with the exception of grant funding. And I wrote some grants, uh, got the funding, and built a pretty robust telehealth infrastructure uh, at the university and kind of my road into technology started there and it's just continued. Okay. That's a great journey. I love it. I've read some of your articles. You're published a whole bunch here. One of them was the digital revolution in behavioral health. Kind of talked about, hey, psychiatry is not quite where it needs to be and it had more to do, I think, with the regulatory stuff that was holding it back pre-COVID, 2019 was when this article was. Are you still involved with telehealth now? Because it seems like the handcuffs are off right now. Yeah, so technology for telehealth was actually fairly easy. I mean, it's fairly simple video conferencing technology. And so once we were able to develop kind of the operational processes to underline telepsychiatry, once we got it up and going, it went really smooth. And so we had actually a fairly robust telepsychiatry program prior to the pandemic starting. The problem, however, with telepsychiatry and and with telehealth in in general is it's still provider dependent. And in a discipline like behavioral health, there's just not enough psychiatrists, not enough psychiatric nurse practitioners 
practitioners to go around. And so I could not scale up my telepsychiatry service lines any further until we graduated another psychiatrist. So it wasn't actually demand for the service. It wasn't actually the regulatory barriers or even reimbursement. I figured out the workarounds to that. It was just we could not get the people out of our schools quick enough to provide the services. So I quickly moved from telepsychiatry, once I kind of reached this critical mass and couldn't grow it any further into other technology platforms that weren't provider dependent. So then kind of my next foray came into the mobile app space and I joined the health lab at the University of Rochester, which is our health systems digital health incubator, which I now co-direct that program. And we started building behavioral health focused mobile apps, both iOS and Android apps that are integrated right into Epic, our EHR, prescribed through Epic to our patients. As they move through those apps, that data flows back to our providers. And it was a way of scaling behavioral health services that was not dependent on actually having a therapist or a psychiatrist on the other end. So telepsychiatry, I'm still involved. I still kind of oversee the program, but um, I don't have my hands in it as I did two, three years ago. I'm real excited about what some of the things you just said. So you have developed some apps and a primary care doctor who's seeing a patient they would prescribe this app, or is it only psychiatrists who prescribe the app? It's actually, it was intended for primary care doctors within our network. So primary care, other generalist providers who are trying to get their patients in to see myself or my colleagues in person or even in a telepsychiatry service line, and we've got a two, three-month wait list to get in to see us. This was a potential treatment option that they could prescribe right away and that a patient could start receiving treatments much sooner than later. So are they doing consults over this app or are they getting text messages? What does the app do for the patient? So it's uh, actually a cognitive behavioral therapy mobile app. And I hear a lot that there's plenty of behavioral health mobile apps out there. And that is correct. There are a lot of, of mental health apps available and a lot in the cognitive behavioral therapy space. My shop or our shop, the health lab, we're not in the business of reinventing the wheel. We looked at some of the CBT mobile apps out there and be frank, we didn't identify one that we could say, in quote, was best of breed or one that we would uh, um, say, yep, this is the app that we want to embrace in our health system and deploy. The problems with some of the previous CBT mobile apps out there were a, they were clunky. B, they weren't individualized to the patients. They were very generic. Yeah, you kind of log into the app, you watch videos that you may or may not relate to, but it wasn't really specific to the patient. And then C, patients felt disengaged from these apps because you're not interacting with a live therapist or psychiatrist on the other end, either an avatar or again, a video of the therapist, or it's a SMS 
text messaging back and forth and folks just felt really disengaged. So our shop, we decided to develop virtual reality embedded uh, CBT mobile app. So we actually filmed our therapist providing the CBT therapy using a virtual reality camera. It On your smartphone, you can see the therapist, but the cool thing is, is you can take the phone and you can point it up to the ceiling, you can point it up to the ground, and you can look all around the office that that therapist is in providing that therapy to you. That therapist then stops, asks you questions which pop up on the screen. You answer the questions the therapist asks, and based off of how you answered those questions, you move into another scene with that therapist. So we developed an app that we felt was more engaging using, again, very basic VR technology, individualized to the patient because the API that drives the app is based off of the user's previous experience. And again, our app was built so it could actually be prescribed uh, through the Epic platform, and then the users' responses as they move through that app, again, feeds back into the medical record so the therapist or primary care doc can see how that patient is doing as they move through the app. Is this commercially available? It is not, no, no. So it's so, just for you. So you just excited me about all this cool tech and now <laughs> you squirreled it away for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> again, it's our digital health incubator, which makes us unique at the university, very different than, let's say, Providence's digital health incubator or the Cleveland Clinic's digital health incubator. One of the kind of unique things about the University of Rochester, different than really most academic medical centers in, in the country, is there's only a handful of us that our budget, our medical center budget, flows up to our university budget. Most academic medical centers have realized that if you break away from your parent university, the cost of providing healthcare goes down because you're not subsidizing the university. We elected at the university not to do that. So what gives us an advantage as a digital health incubator is we have access to brilliant computer engineers, data scientists. We have a world-renowned optics program at the university. So I can leverage that knowledge capacity of my colleague professors over on our graduate and undergraduate campus, and they can actually help us build connect. The, the technology versus um, another digital health incubator that has to partner with a startup to do that. Our goals are per se not to spin out companies and, and commercialize. Our goals are really to fill needs within our health system. And this behavioral health need was a major priority for our health system. And again, we looked at what was already out on the market. We weren't happy with it. And we came up with hypotheses of solutions to what was already in the market and we built it to ourselves to deploy within our own health system. Very interestingly, that CBT app moved, we spun out a sister application of actually a mindfulness meditation virtual reality application that 
is used on Oculus headsets. So the Oculus Quest is what we built it for. Pre-COVID, that, so we haven't even gone to pilot testing, but the goal of that was for patients pre-surgery who may be anxious to decrease their anxiety going into surgery with hopes that will improve outcomes, and also to use it for pain management after surgery. So we would actually deploy these Oculus headsets uh, throughout our medical center and our homegrown mindfulness meditation application, which again is very individualized to that patient, would be deployed. It's amazing the resources that you've plugged into there, plus the free labor of students, I suspect, and that must help as well. It it absolutely does. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, So I do want to get to this article that you wrote in Health Tech Magazine where you talk about the Amazon effect, how we're digitalizing healthcare and people want things with one click and they want to be able to get access to the right information at the right time. You start off though with something that's the right patient and you talk about this tool, UR Voice. The tool, it sounds like you are collecting outcomes data from your patients at the clinic. Tell us more about that program. That seems very exciting. We don't get a lot of outcomes data, to be honest, in healthcare. It's, well, death is one we measure, but we don't get like, hey, how are you doing compared to the last time I saw you kind of outcomes data? So tell us about that program a little bit. Yeah, so that program actually started in our orthopedic department. So this was very early on and kind of the move from volume-based reimbursement to value-based reimbursement. One of the early value-based reimbursement products that our health system was looking at were joint bundles. And prior to UR Voice, our orthopedics department invested lots of money into technologies looking at, let's say, gait mobility or rotator cuff mobility and spent millions of dollars into this technology to find out that the physical outcomes that this technology was looking at really had little to no essentially impact on patient outcomes after surgery. And so our orthopedics department said, what are we missing here? Maybe we should just like ask our patients how they're feeling, right? And maybe we should start profiling our patients so we can better understand who we're actually serving. And that may give us inference to how they do after care. Our university, one of the things that we're most known for is the biopsychosocial model. That's a, the, the birthplace of that model came from George Engel at our university. And so we thought, all right, if we're going to profile our patients, let's profile them from that bio, that physical lens, that, that psychological lens and, and social lens. And so what we decided to do in orthopedics was that every single patient that came into an orthopedic um, service line, we were going to collect patient report outcomes on these patients. As soon as they checked in, we would give them an iPad. They would fill out this packet of instruments, essentially included an emotional distress scale, a physical functioning scale, and uh, a pain interference scale. We then used zip code data of all of our patients, and we geocoded these patients, and we looked at kind of area deprivation scores to get a kind of context of social determinants of health for these patients. And we started collecting these packets of instruments on anybody that came through. So even if you came in for uh, an ankle injury, you were gonna get emotional distress, uh, a screening tool at, at every touch point. 
we then started rolling that out across all of our service lines at the University of Rochester to the point where we had a very robust, systematically collected profile of our patients, again, through this biopsychosocial lens. That is a, a, an enormous asset to us. So we have got now the largest patient reported outcome data sets uh, I know in the country, if not the world. And that data set we actually use as our foundation for machine learning and artificial intelligence, which comes out of our lab. I think AI is, is a cliche in some ways. Every health system says, I'm doing AI in my health system, and they may be doing that. But the problem is that a lot of health systems are doing machine learning and AI in their electronic health record, which we know is dirty, has a lot of noise, a lot of variability. And so the patterns or the outliers that the computer is finding may or may not actually be relevant. Because we have this very homogeneous, systematically collected profile data set of all of our patients, now we can actually do good machine learning and do some good prediction models on our patients. And depending on what the clinical question is, we will then pull in some EHR data into this large data set that we have, and we pull in the, the data fields that we think may be relevant to the model that we're running. That has been really successful in that joint bundle specific project. We were able to predict at very high specificity and sensitivity which patients pre-surgery were going to end up into a skilled nursing facility after surgery for rehab. And we found, we knew that being put into rehab after surgery was the most costly part of that bundle. Because of that prediction model, we were then able to put in a risk calculator into Epic so our surgeons could see pre that surgery on like almost like a speedometer dial, what is that risk profile of that patient of if I did surgery today, they're going to end up in a nursing home. That surgeon could then play with some of the modifiable risk factors uh, within the model, change the patient's weight, put some social supports around this patient. They could then see in real time that that probability that that patient was going to go into a nursing home change and they could make a better decision and say, but well, I'm not going to do surgery today. I want you to go home. We're going to get some home health services set up. We're going to work on your motivation. Uh, we see that your depression scores are, are creeping up there. And then we're going to have you come back in three months and we're going to reevaluate whether or not we're going to do the surgery. That was extremely successful for us. And it really uh, not only improved the quality of care that we provide to our patients, but saved our health system a lot of money. So we've used that same, again, data sets to do things like risk stratify our patients in behavioral health so we can give them the right level of care at the right time in the right place. We've used that data set to help determine where to allocate resources like telemedicine into which markets uh, within our geographic market share that we see that the highest need. So that's really the history of UR Voice and, and how we leverage it now to, again, move our, our system forward. Where you're at is cutting edge in my mind. I did read in the article, you started this around 2015, you've got over 2.6 million data points, it sounds like. 
for your patient collected outcome data. And you guys are flying a plane with instruments and I feel like I'm flying blind. If I wanted to go to a back surgeon in town, I don't have any data whatsoever to say, well, do patients come out feeling better after back surgery from surgeon A versus surgeon B? I have no knowledge of that. And you guys do, so you can learn. Dr. A has a different technique than Dr. B. Maybe someone needs to learn something different if there's outcomes to support it. Correct. No one has outcomes data in healthcare except programs like this, and there's not a lot of them. So I, one, I'm just in awe. I'm just, I'm, I get a little bit flabbergasted here. What an awesome program. And what it doesn't sound like it was terribly difficult. We're talking iPads. This is probably like a my chart welcome or questionnaire kind of thing that you guys are using, or is it something different? You could use it through MyChart. We actually, before even Welcome was thought of, we built our kind of own third-party application that integrated to, into Epic. And so kind of the cool thing is that we essentially provide our providers with uh, line graphs so they can see all of these data points at uh, every touch point that this patient came in within our health system. And you can kind of see, hey, this patient's pain interference is, is going up, their physical functioning is going down, their depression is going up, and so you can intervene much earlier. Uh, as you also said, we're now linking this data to claims data. We're linking it to, at the provider level. We can see this this physical therapist does better with patients that maybe have low motivation. This physical therapist does better with patients with very low pain thresholds. And so, again, we can start aligning our patients with the right provider that will deliver the most efficient care. This is what I want my CMIO colleagues to listen in on is number one, you put in place the ability to collect the data, but more importantly, you use your data. Most of us sit on our data. We don't use it. We don't have the ability to gather great insights from it. And so what does your data scientist team look like here? How many people are involved in doing predictive modeling or coming up with brilliant insights for you guys? We have two full-time in our incubator, two full-time data scientists, but at any given time, we have multiple doctorate students, master's students, uh, even undergrad students, because we have uh, a data science program over on our undergraduate and graduate campus. So we've got really in the lab, two full-time data scientists who then oversee those students on projects. So it's, it's a very small, agile team. The other thing is we didn't create these instruments. We're leveraging 15 years of NIH research. So we're leveraging the patient-reported outcome system that NIH has been researching for years called Promise. And the cool thing about Promise is it's readily available. It's Most of the instruments are computer adaptive. It uses item response theory. So we're, we didn't reinvent the wheel here. We just looked at this was the best of breed. They've already done the crosswalks from, let's say, the PHQ-9 or the GAD-7 over to the, the, the Promise instruments. So it made our lives much easier. We just needed um, to create the software platform to collect the, the data and get it into our record. One of the areas I feel many of us are weak on is collecting the social determinant of health data, either discomfort with asking the questions or just time pressures and 
when you're dealing with someone who's got diabetes and high blood pressure, high cholesterol and heart disease, and you're focusing on the diseases, not so much the fact that they're homeless, can't get access to food and are de depressed, which probably undermines our entire care plan. So you're getting at that social determinants of health through this tool, aren't you? In, in some ways, where, where I think we really get to the social determinants of health is our geocoding of our patients. I mean, yes, it's a culture change to, to start asking questions around homelessness and are you employed or unemployed, race, ethnicity, gender. I think we're getting better in healthcare, but it, that's a very large, I think, culture change with our providers to feel more comfortable to ask that regularly. Like kind of how we're getting a proxy of what social determinants of health barriers a patient may be facing is we have all of our patients' addresses, and we, again, geocode those, those addresses, and we look at area deprivation scores for those zip codes, and that gives us at least a, a proximal insight into some of the barriers that our patients may be encountering. We're trying, like most health systems, to do a better job of actually asking those questions. Tell me about the providers you're working with. Who wants to play with you on this technology side? Who's been engaging and saying, bring that technology to me. I want to clinically be the champion for our area on that. Yeah, so in our health system, our leaders have been pediatrics, and not surprising, geriatrics, behavioral health. I think a lot of the disciplines or departments that are not procedural base that really more aligned to value-based reimbursement or population health. I think it, those have been the departments that have probably been the most successful in the digital health space because they are, are, are finding opportunities to innovate to potentially save costs and improve quality. I think other departments um, that are more procedural heavy, they make their bread and butter in, in a fee-for-service uh, uh, landscape. And in some ways, digital health doesn't fit in very nicely in volume-based reimbursement. So they're not rocking their boat because they make their money by how many procedures they can get done within an hour. So I think mm -hmm. our leaders have been, been those departments and disciplines that aren't very heavy on uh, on the procedural side, with the exception of orthopedics. I do have to give a shout out to orthopedics at our medical center. They, the, our digital health incubator came out of orthopedics with kind of that start of UR voice. So they've been definitely ahead of the game. So Michael, we're coming to the end of our time here, but I was hoping to ask you one more question which is, what's your vision for where this will go? This technology of gathering the outcomes, what are you planning to do next with it, or what is the, where's the system going with that? I see the University of Rochester really becoming a digital-first healthcare system, where, as I said in that Healthcare Tech Magazine's article, we're delivering truly the right level of care at the right time at the right place. And the only way we're going to do that is being data-driven. Um, we're, again, ahead of the game because I think, similar to a lot of the big tech companies out there, Google, Amazon, Facebook, we have started to profile our consumers, our patients, and so we have a better understanding of who they are and what their preferences are, where they do best, 
And I think you know, we're quickly learning where our gaps are in our system and trying to meet the patients where they're at. And technology oftentimes can fill those gaps. So I really truly see us as, especially on the East Coast, as, as being one of the, the leaders in the digital health space. And when you think of healthcare at the U of R, you're going to be thinking about digital first before the, the brick and mortar clinic. But as I also said in the Amazon article, we don't really need to be the leaders in innovation at the University of Rochester. We can look to our colleagues out on the West Coast that are already in reimbursement models that uh, set up nicely to digital health. So we really look at the providences of the world, the Stanfords of the world, the Kaisers of the world. They've figured a lot of this out already. And so we're taking the essentially best from the best of the breed and uh, breeds and we're applying them within our health system. And I think because of all the great work our colleagues have done on the West Coast, it's allowed us to move fairly quick in our health system. So you've really shifted my paradigm here because I previously, when I thought of the U of R, I would think of snow. Now I got to think of data science. You just totally shifted everything I thought about the U of R. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we, we love data. Data's, data is the asset. It's not the technology. It's the data. And so absolutely, we love data. I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been, I'm just so impressed with what the university has done and continues to do around using data, putting it to use at the level of the clinic, in the hands of the clinicians. Michael, if people wanted to reach out to you to connect, learn more, what would be the best way to do that? Oh, email me. Probably the, the best way, just go to the University of Rochester website or Google Michael Hasselberg and my email should pop up and I would love to touch base with anybody in this space that is interested. I think that's how, how we start a movement across this country in digital health is looking for the fast followers and looking at the leaders and just continue to move it forward. So please, yes, absolutely reach out to me. Your passion for being data-driven and improving health outcomes, it's phenomenal. So thank you for sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Uh, that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.